going to invite you to read with me from 1 Kings 19, and I'm actually going to rewind a bit, starting in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me. More also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O God, take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth May the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The fight or flight response is this automatic physiological reaction to what is perceived to be a threatening or harmful situation. Harvard physiologist Walter Bradford Cannon first coined this term back in the 1920s when he discovered that animals react to dangerous situations with a discharge of the sympathetic nervous system, giving them the energy they need to either fight the threat or flee the scene. Of course, over time, scientists discovered that humans exhibit similar fight-or-flight reactions, whether it be in response to something physically dangerous or something that makes us anxious, worried, or afraid. Both humans and animals have the same part of the brain called the amygdala, a cluster of cells about the size of a grape, that that is constantly scanning the environment for potentially dangerous situations, always ready to sound the alarm in times of need. Now, the amygdala is incredibly important for our bodies because it keeps us safe. It helps to protect us from harm. It keeps us out of a dangerous situation when there isn't time to think about what to do next. Without it, animals have been known to play with venomous snakes like a child might play with a toy. They bat at the snake's hissing tongues without ever even considering the danger. And so the squirrel that's dashing across the sidewalk or the deer sprinting through the woods have an amygdala that is no different than our own. But it's important to understand that the amygdala is intended for rare and very specific circumstances in which we are truly in danger. 
Sometimes, if we are to become perpetually anxious or fearful, our amygdala can go into overdrive. Bruce McCowan, a neuroendocrinologist, says that when this happens, our stress limits our repertoire of responses. Fixated on what is endangering us, we forfeit our imaginative capacities. We act with small and sometimes unproductive behaviors. With fewer alternatives to consider, we act foolishly. When the amygdala is in control, our perception warps measurably. Our mind is set in imaginative gridlock. We obsess about the threat, and our chances of thinking our way through the issue to some kind of satisfactory resolution are almost non-existent. Reactive forces rule. As I was reading about the amygdala this week, I immediately began to reflect on the space that you and I and our entire world have been inhabiting throughout the pandemic. Because our amygdalae, and yes, I looked that up, that is the plural of amygdala, (laughs) our amygdalae have been in overdrive for 18 plus months now. And I can't help but wonder what effect that must be having on us. And even though life is beginning to return to some normalcy, we know we're not out of the woods yet. Just when we thought it was safe to begin to take our masks down, the Delta variant is running rampant among us, putting most of our country back in the red zone. We're continually asking ourselves what's safe and what's not. To top it all off, our kids are starting back to school in the midst of this. And after seeing more than a few of your social media posts this week, I am mindful that many of us find ourselves completely overwhelmed right now. But if that is the case for you, I want you to know that you find good company with Elijah in today's scripture reading. Because I believe that in today's text, in 1 Kings, Elijah finds himself inhabiting a similar kind of space. Sure, he's not coming out of an 18-month pandemic. He's actually coming out of a three-year drought and famine. Food and water have been scarce, far more than what we experienced during those initial stages of COVID with empty shelves at the grocery stores last year. And then to make matters worse, Elijah has been bravely standing up to the powers that be and challenging King Ahab. But in response to all the supposed trouble that Elijah is causing, Queen Jezebel has now threatened to kill him. And so Elijah is a fugitive running for his life. Surely his amygdala is in overdrive, right? His fight-or-flight reaction is in full gear towards flight as Elijah takes off toward the wilderness and flees the scene. When he's run so far that he can't run anymore, he finds a tree and falls asleep beneath it. When an angel suddenly taps him on the shoulder and says, why don't you get up and eat something? And he looks down and this angel has been making him a cake baked on hot stones. I love Barbara Brown Taylor, who says that this may be the very first example we have of angel food cake. (laughs) So he, he lies back down, 
Until a little later, this angel wakes him up a second time and says to Elijah, get up and eat some angel food cake. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. I invite you to remember the first time you became sick as an adult. After you'd moved out of your family's house, you're on your own. I remember that. I remember I was so mad that I had to take myself to the doctor's office. And then I had to go to the pharmacy and wait for the prescription while I was shivered in the corner of Walgreens with a fever and throbbing headache. And then I had to go to the grocery and get the chicken noodle soup, and I even had to fix it for myself when I got home. Being sick is hard enough, but taking care of yourself when you're sick can be brutal. But for several years back in Waco, I got to live with my best friend, Ida. Ida is a great cook, an amazing roommate, and she was an even better friend. And whenever I got sick, Ida's motherly instincts would just immediately pop in. I might be laying on the couch, groaning in misery, and she would say, you know, have you had anything to eat in a while? <laughs> what, what if I cut up an orange for you so that you could get some good vitamin C in your system? Or why don't I fix you some toast with peanut butter? That might give you a little more energy why don't you get up and try to eat something, even if it's just a few bites? And I remember what a gift it was to live with someone who really took care of me when I was sick, who would literally remind me to get up and eat and keep drinking every now and then so that I didn't wither away, which is exactly what this angel does for Elijah in today's scripture reading. Now, this text is an often overlooked story in our Bible, usually overshadowed by some of the more dramatic or better-known passages about Elijah. We don't usually teach this one in Sunday school with the little flannel boards, do we? But what Elijah receives here are practical, tangible provisions that enable him to continue taking the journey ahead of him. Otherwise, as the angel says, it will be too much. Of course, the reality is that it's been a year and a half of too much, hasn't it? Research shows that the pandemic took a toll on our overall well-being. And a recent article in the New York Times says that languishing may be the best word to describe what many of us are feeling these days. Psychologist Adam Grant writes that we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing, with flourishing being the peak of our well-being and depression being the valley of ill-being. But languishing, he says, is this neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing. It's the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness per se, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. It actually appears to be more common among us right now than depression. And psychologists say that languishing may be the most dominant emotion we experience in the year 2021. If that article is right, then the reality is that there's a lot of languishing in this room today. 
And after several conversations, after our early morning worship service this morning, I believe that to be true. People said, that's what I've been experiencing. I just haven't had a name for it. I've often reminded myself throughout this year that none of us is operating at our best right now. I mean, how could we? And yet this text reminds us that when the journey is too much for us, when the pandemic is overwhelming, when the prognosis isn't good, when the news isn't what we wanted to hear, when life just feels like too much, maybe there are angels lingering near. And perhaps the best thing we can do in these moments is to get up and eat something. To pull from whatever it is that is available to us in these moments to care for ourselves so that we can keep taking that next step forward. I love how Debbie Thomas summarizes this story of 1 Kings. She writes, I love that the angel prepares Elijah's meal right in front of him as Elijah snores away, only rousing the prophet when breakfast is ready. I love that the cake is warm and fragrant from hot stones. I love that it's cake. I love that the angel is persistent in her efforts to pull Elijah out of this space. She wakes him up twice and prods him until he eats the whole meal. But she also says, I love that the angel never minimizes or dismisses the difficulties of Elijah's journey. She never says, buck up, Elijah, your situation isn't that bad. Or you've survived the worst of it. It's all downhill from here. She never says, once you eat what I've prepared for you, things will be smooth sailing the rest of the way. Or what has happened to your faith, Elijah? Why would you doubt? No, she says to him, Elijah, get up and eat. Eat because this journey is hard. Eat because you won't ever make it on your own. Eat because God longs to nourish you with food that will save your life. The angel doesn't spiritualize Elijah's exhaustion or deny his difficult reality. The angel doesn't offer him a shortcut either. The journey is his to make and it cannot be sidestepped. But, she says, he can choose how he makes the journey. He can decide what condition he'll be in when he embarks on it. Famished or fed, strengthened or weak, accompanied or alone, Elijah gets to choose. And friends, the reality is, so do we. No one knows what the months ahead hold for us. This is an unknown and uncertain time, and it's overwhelming. But I believe we get to choose how we will approach it day by day. Which is why it is all the more important for each of us in our own different ways to get up and eat to always be on the lookout for angels that are lingering nearby, to feed our bodies and souls with things that will nourish and sustain us for the days ahead, to take care of ourselves so that we can show up in the best ways possible wherever the road leads. As a follow-up to that article on languishing, there was a subsequent article in the New York Times entitled, The Other Side of Languishing is Flourishing, Here's how to get there. 
And the author proceeded to give some of the following recommendations, simple things that you and I might do or practice in order to help us just move the needle a bit from languishing toward flourishing. So she recommended things like savor and celebrate big things and small things. Adopt a practice of gratitude. Volunteer, practice acts of kindness. Look for community and connection. Find purpose and ritual and routine. And it struck me as I was reading this list that absolutely everything that was recommended is something we practice together as a church. That perhaps what we need most to help us move from a place of languishing toward flourishing is available to us right here, right within this community of faith. Friends, what you and I have to be willing to do is to get up and eat. Next week, we will have the state of the church at 10 a.m. right here in the sanctuary. Staff and I will be talking about the journey we'll be taking this year at Highland as we seek to rebuild the church. That's what my message is about next week, but this week my message for us is simple. We've got to get up and eat first. We each have to do the spiritual work needed as we continue to recover and heal from the past year and a half and to sustain us for the journey ahead. The question is, what are the things that you and I need to be doing in order to be the best version of ourselves that we can be for whatever this coming year holds for us? It's the most important spiritual work you and I could ever do. And no one else can do it for us. Friends, I believe that even in the wilderness, angel food cake abounds. Our task, day by day, is to get up and eat. May it be so of us, Highland. Amen.